Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And we're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Reggie Williams. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for accepting our invitation. We're excited um, to talk to you today. But before we get into our topic today, I would just like you to just give a little bit of background about yourself for our audience. Well, I'm associate professor of Christian ethics at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago's Hyde Park. Um, I've been here for six years. Um, I have a lot of different things that I write about, talk about. Um, I have. Um, written a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's time in Harlem. Um, it's an exploration of the way that the black church and in interaction with the Harlem Renaissance um, affected his ability to see and recognize racism as a problem for Christians and was influential for him when he went back to Nazi Germany. I hope that's the kind of thing that you're asking for. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so we're going to talk about your book um, about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Um, for those who don't know who he is, can you just tell tell um, our audience who Diedrich Bonhoeffer is? Sure. Um, so Diedrich Bonhoeffer's most known um, book, I should say, is Cost of Discipleship. Um, the most recent translation of it by the Dietrich, by the International Dietrich Bonhoeffer Society is called is uh, just Discipleship. It's a tra translation of the German word Nachfolge. So it's just discipleship. He's really well known for that. And another one that it's read by a lot of folks in churches called Cost of Discipleship. I'm sorry, called uh, Life Together. Um, he was a part of uh, a group that made an, an unsuccessful attempt at exchanging the government. Um, there was a movie made by uh, about a general who was the head of that effort, um, uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg placed a bomb under a table in a bunker that Hitler and his leaders were meeting in. The movie's called Valkyrie, and the lead character in it is Tom Cruise. Um, Bonhoeffer was uh, a member 
um, of the uh, of, a, of a group around the Abwehr, which was the German version of the CIA that was also involved in this effort to replace the government. So most people think of it as an assassination attempt, but it was mostly, it was actually a, a whole uh, exchanging government, a whole coup effort. Um, and the controversy about Bonhoeffer's involvement it is that he was, he was pacifist. Um, he's a peace witness um, and a pastor and a theologian. Um, he was in opposition to the Nazis, um, primarily about their issue to, well, their, their, their anti-Semitism. So um, in a nutshell, he was a theologian, activist, and a scholar, a very popular one from the uh, Third Reich, uh, actually, yeah, from, during Nazi Germany, an activist writing and speaking and opposing the Nazis um, early on. Um, and the rise of the Nazi regime. I'll say one more thing about that. He saw very clearly, very early, that Hitler was a problem. Um, people didn't listen to him, and there were others that were like him as well who saw the problem. They didn't listen to him. By the time people saw that there was a problem, they had a gain, they'd gained too much, um, the Nazis had gained too much power for anything significant to be done. So, um, yeah, he's a, a hero for a lot of Christians as a result of his clear theological inter, uh, clear theological perspective on the problem of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And one of the unique things most people that don't know that you alluded to and that your book speaks to is that he had a, a transformational experience in Harlem. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, he was 24 years old when he went to New York and he had written two dissertations um, by the time he went, and he had already been appointed as, as a, a professor at the University of Berlin, but he was too young to be ordained. And the person in charge of his ordination process, um, a man named Diestel, suggested that he see the world a bit because he's a bit young. So um, he wasn't interested in going initially, but they decided on New York and Union Seminary because it was in New York. He gets over to New York. Um, thinking he, has, he doesn't really have much to learn about theology over there. He spends most of his time, his free time, in Harlem uh, in 1930. He's there for one year as a student. Um, Harlem at that time was the center of the Harlem Renaissance. And, and he was attending Abyssinian Baptist Church, where he was a Sunday school teacher and a midweek Bible study teacher to women, black women at the church. This time featured prominently in an awakening that happened for him. He describes in a, um, a, well, when he returns, he describes in a letter that he hadn't yet become a Christian uh, when he was writing his dissertations. Um, he says later in 1944 in a letter to his best friend that he didn't change much with the exception of two things, two times in his life. One was first exposure to his father's personality. His father was this authoritarian figure. And then he says, after my first trip abroad, it was then that I changed from, from the phraseological to the real, he says, from the abstract, really, to the concrete. First trip abroad. This was transformative for him. In, in um, scholars' debate as to what he was talking about with that first trip, I'm um, clear that my argument is that first trip abroad was first trip across the Atlantic um, to the United States. 
uh, he saw racism from the perspective of people subject to it. That's one. Secondly, he had an encounter with some Christians who told him and, well, told him to send back to Germany best wishes to Christians there in Germany because they didn't, bl they thought that blaming the Germans for the war, this was after World War I, putting all blame on German, Germany for the war was unjust. That was huge for him because as a German, after World War I, um, the Germans felt like that was an unfair thing that the Allies did at the uh, Versailles Peace Conference in 1919. They blamed Germany alone for the world, for that war. Well, that, that was huge for him. He gets back to Germany. A lot of Christians are, um, they're closed in on each other in thinking only of themselves and the rest of the world is against them because this soul guilt theory. But Christians internationally, well, Christians in the United States said, we don't see that you don't, we, we don't see that way. See you that way. You're our, our family. That's one. And that opened him up. But in addition to that, the language of racism as a Christian, as an issue for Christians, was also significant for him. So that, that caused some transform, a transformation in his understanding of himself as a Christian. And the last thing I'd say about that is that Bonhoeffer wasn't really going to church, although he was a pastor for a time before he went to New York. He was, a, he was an assistant pastor at a church for expatriate Germans in Barcelona, Spain comes back and he writes a second dissertation from Spain to, Bar to back to Ger Germany. Um, he wasn't really going to church very much. Uh, it, it, that part, I mean, all of his dissertations were about the church and the place of the church for Christians. He goes over to New York and he's regularly attending Abyssinian Baptist Church and it grabs him. Um, it grabs him in a, in a way that makes it come alive to him. So his faith is important to him. The, um, the church in general, Christians internationally, become a family for him. And thirdly, and most importantly for what was to come, he sees racism as a, as a Christian problem. All of those things are a part of his trip abroad. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting as you're talking about that, that it seems like the first time he saw Christianity as a communal endeavor was in the black church. And that was so transformative for him because he had been around Christianity, but it never really a part of it in a, in a, in a, this communal aspect until um, he was at the black church, which shows the richness of the tradition that I'm steeped in um, of the black church, that we provide something unique um, to the Christian experience. And, and that uniqueness brings transformation um, to people of all races. Exactly. He, so he had crafted this wonderful language of the church um, in a time in which there was hunger, shame, poverty, and the church is the visible presence of the body of Christ in the world. But in Germany, it wasn't that at all. There was no actual body, church body, that would demonstrate this language of what the church is that he had described. Um, and it was a problem for him. Uh, a German scholar named Hans Pfeiffer says that he was in a deadlock. It was, it was, it, it just, it was dis, 
um, disorienting, disconnected. So he goes over to the United States looking for a cloud of witnesses. Those are his words. He gets to Harlem during the Great Depression at Abyssinian Baptist Church that's doing community outreach. They are actually embodying this place of the church in the world that is making a difference in a community that is hard hit by poverty, by racism, and so forth. The great migration is happening. People are coming up from the South, fleeing there as really as, as refugees, war refugees from white supremacy. Um, there is the, is the cloud of witnesses that he was looking for. This is what the church should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he actually um, imitates that when he comes back to um, Germany. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting in the title, you said Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, because it kind of flips this narrative that Jesus is the white man and it's, it's, it's the white man's religion. And I think that's so crucial that you put that in the title so we could see um, Jesus in a different light. Is Was that your intention? Um, yeah, well, truth be told, uh, um, the publisher titled it, and I wrestled with that a bit. I was thinking of Black Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. um, something along those lines. And I had, I'd vetted that title with a number of people. The man who trained me in Christian ethics, Glenn Stassen, really, really liked the title. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Cohn about the title too. And he said, well, I don't know if you could see if he had a black Jesus. Um, but it took some time for that title actually to grow on me. And I think it, I, it's fitting, not the black Jesus. Um, could Bonhoeffer still wrestled with his own identity? Um, he was not, he didn't figure it out by any stretch. If he were uh, my friend, I'd be constantly confronting him on the place of white supremacy in his worldview. Uh, he wrestled with that until he died. But he did die as an outcast in a society that was being constructed for his own well-being. It was Christ with those whose backs are pressed to the margins by an oppressive uh, political regime that inspired him. So, yeah, I would say that... Um, Jesus was black, or or at least he was flirting in the direction of a black Jesus. Mm-hmm. But that was the that's the intent of the um, of the title. He was inspired by black Jesus, mm-hmm. haunted by black Jesus. Better put, mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. What what do you think this speaks to us today? Um, as we're in a um, situation where it's, we're just trying to figure out what's going on uh, with our current administration, um, how do you think this book, I think it's, it speaks directly to our times today, what would you say um, to that? Um, immediately two things come to mind. One, that we have a lot of Christians whose Christianity isn't bothered by the rhetoric coming out of Washington, by the movement to take the country back again. Their Christianity goes right along with that. In fact, they find that to be an expression of their faith. Uh, They find within this, with this administration, lots of things that resonate with their Christianity. That's not unfamiliar to Bonhoeffer. 
that wasn't unfamiliar to Bonhoeffer. That wasn't unfamiliar to him at that, in that context. What he found in Harlem amongst Christians who were harmed by that kind of rhetoric was a Christianity that's not based on right belief, but on love your neighbor. One's ability to have actual contact with your neighbor, to see your neighbor's concrete needs, not an abstract doctrine. That is what, um, that's what he found in New York. Um, and that's important for us today. But another thing I would say is that that book is really as much about the black church as it is about Bonhoeffer. So what, um, taking a cue from Adam Clayton Powell Sr. and that black church, um, Powell preached a sermon that was reprinted while Bonhoeffer was there um, called, uh, well, it was on saving faith. And uh, the sermon, in the sermon, he said the best language, the best reference to saving faith that I've read in the Bible comes from Mary, the mother of Jesus in Cana, when the wine ran out. Whatever he says to you, do it. A faith of, of deeds, a faith that pays attention to us having something that we're supposed to do. That's different than a Christianity based on right belief. It's a Christianity of doctrine that's got us in this problem. That is so, that is, that's a, that is a colonial Christianity that um, doesn't pay attention to social interaction and, and as a result can be blended with cruelty and overlook stuff that's important. Um, the other one I would say about that church is, um, it really corresponds with the first one, is its emphasis on what's happening in society. They moved to, uh, to Harlem in 1923 because of the great migration and paying attention to what was happening in the needs of, with the needs of people. So, uh, oh, and it's a prophetic church. The prophetic is a, is a, a horizontal um, gaze, not just a vertical gaze. That's one thing that's resonated with Bonhoeffer because the, the horizontal perspective for Christ alone doesn't allow us to be free for our neighbors. And when um, Bonhoeffer was there in Harlem, Powell preached a, ser- preached a sermon. This is not just printed. He preached a sermon called The Hungry God. Two sermons, one called The, the, um, the Naked God, one called The Hungry God from Matthew 25, based on Matthew 25. And the, the origin of these sermons is interesting. Powell was driving along in Harlem in a new car that the church had purchased for him. It's a really nice car. Abyssinia is a wealthy congregation, just like it is today. And he's looking at people who are devastated by the Great Depression. And in frustration, he says, God, why don't you do something? He says that he was sleeping a couple of days later, wakes up in the night after hearing, um, after hearing in a dream, Powell, why don't you do something? And he felt like God was telling him, you have to do something. So he preached this, this sermon series, The Naked God and the Hungry God. The Hungry God sounds a lot like something Bonhoeffer would have been familiar with. He says, we clothe God, or we feed God when we feed our hungry neighbor. The Bible doesn't, if the Bible doesn't say this, it's not saying anything at all. That you have contact with God when you have contact with human life. That's the focus of Christianity. 
contact with human life. That's the location of your moral reasoning in the real world, in social interaction. Otherwise, Christianity based on belief and principles only, you're righteous before you have any in contact with people. Mm -hmm. the, the very location where you're supposed to be faithful to God is in human contact. That's coming out of Abyssinian. That's the message of Abyssinian. It resonated with Bonhoeffer, which became his cloud of witnesses. And today, what if people recognized that actual human life is the location of our Christian faithfulness? In the United States, we'd have to recognize black and brown people and Muslim, black and brown, black and brown people as human. That's going to be a controversy. That's, that's going to be a, a, an undoing of the way anthropology is set up by white supremacy. But without that, we are constantly, or white folks, I should say, in this administration, this, con, this, this time period is constantly um, re-crucifying, re-persecuting Christ in their daily interaction or apathy towards black and brown people. I think that's, that's so helpful uh, because many are frustrated with the rhetoric coming out of Washington. And it's frustrating also to see cr uh, Christians um, jumping on that bandwagon um, without challenging what's being said because they have certain principles that they want to hold strong to without looking at the oppression of other people in this country. And um, so there's this, this kind of idleness of America and not understanding that Christ didn't die for America, only he died for the world. And so I think that is so important that we remember the words that you, you spoke and also the words in your book to help us navigate this space that's so crucial. What other things would you like to highlight from your book that we haven't already addressed? Yeah. Um, I think some of my, some of the stuff that was most enjoyable for me in writing that book come out of the third chapter and looking at the way Harlem Renaissance artists depicted and talked about Jesus. Mm. Um, the language there is what I teach and I teach a course on the Harlem Renaissance. The language there is, is a black aesthetic. So aesthetics is the uh, rules for beauty as it pertains to philosophy and art. Aesthetics, um, by framing what is beautiful, also teach or depict moral, right, wrong, holy, um, good, bad, and so forth. And um, it is propaganda for things that the artist or people selling things um, want to communicate. In 1926, Du Bois wrote an essay called, and I don't have this in the book. I, I wish I'd had it in the book, especially in that chapter. Uh, du Bois um, gave a speech here in Chicago called The Criteria for Negro Art, where he describes a black aesthetic. Um, he doesn't say this in this article, but a black aesthetic is, is what black people have created um, to communicate black beauty and virtue um, created out of the, out of the, um, the catastrophe of um, or the calamity of black life in the United States, the mess that we are in. It's a 
bricolage, a collection of things that come together to organize or to describe the black experience, black experience and beauty from black, from a um, black experience. Um, he says in this essay or the speech, the criteria for Negro art, that beauty is in the service of truth and justice. Mm. Um, and he talks about Harlem Renaissance intellectuals as apostles of beauty. Mm. To tell the truth about the black people you know, because the way that a white aesthetic depicts black people is grotesque. It's hideous. And so um, to, they, they, don't rep- they don't represent the black people that we know, that you know, that we are. So um, go and be that apostle of beauty. Tell the truth. When they're depicting Jesus as black, they're doing something that's very different than the white aesthetic has shown of black life and black people. That's helpful. I, I love that um, because I'm thinking as you're you're talking about that and just even paralleling that to our day and how the news media uh, paints uh, black people and white people in the media. I just saw on my timeline on Instagram the other day when they were talking about the um, the Las Vegas shooter and how they talked about Mike Brown and then they right. they put them together. And so it's kind of like that, even as you're talking about uh, the, the, um, the aesthetic, how that is kind of, it transfers to even meet in every form of media and in journalism um, that we could, yeah. So we could see so clearly today. Um, So thank you, Dr. Williams. I really think this was helpful and I want to encourage everybody, all of our listeners to get his book. Where can they get your, your book? What's on Amazon? On Amazon. And, and you have a few other books as, as well, correct? Well, I've got a few that I'm working on. The only other oh. book, the only other hardback that I've got is a, is a, um, um, a fest drift, a celebration of the writing of my mentor you know, that I co-edited with David Gushy. But I've got a couple books that I'm working on currently. There are books, I've got essays and books and so forth, but that's the only single author book of mine right now. Okay. Awesome. So y'all get Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus on Amazon. How can they get in contact with you, Dr. Williams? Are you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really know how to tweet very well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm on I'm on Facebook and they can also just reach out to me at, at McCormick. My um, email and contact, all that stuff is there on the McCormick website. It's just my first initial last name at McCormick.edu. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for gracing us with your time. And this has been a rich interview and I'm excited for uh, our listeners to hear it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.